0: Military Veterans in Journalism proudly presents Sword and Pen.
1: Welcome to another episode of Sword and Pen, a monthly MVJ podcast dedicated to inspiring, supporting, and educating our members and veteran community. I am your host, Lori King, and I thank you for tuning in. In this episode of Sword and Pen, we are checking in on one of the winners of the Top 10 Military Veterans in Journalism Class of 2020. The awardees list was an impressive collective of vets doing powerful journalism, and it includes Kelly Kennedy, Managing Editor of the War Horse News, and Stephanie Ramos, a national correspondent at ABC News. Also on that list was Tony Mobley, a U.S. Navy veteran turned photojournalist and he is this month's guest on The Sword and Pen. Tony, a Washington, D.C. native, is a photographer who uses his camera to document social justice reform and activism. His winning entry for the MVJ Top 10 featured some of his work in a public service announcement narrated by Nas. That aired on the Black Entertainment Network Plus in June 2020. The PSA introduced BET's Content for Change initiative, a $25 million campaign targeting racial inequity in America. Tony, your camera lens points at a very diverse range of topics, COVID and Black Lives Matter protests, portraits, concerts, and street photography. And one of your proudest accomplishments was an assignment to document the 400th anniversary of the 1619 Project for the National Park Service in 2019. I am so excited to talk to you about how you got started in photography, your passion for storytelling, and what drives you now. So welcome, Tony.
0: Thank you for having me, Lori, I appreciate that.
1: Let's begin by you taking us back to your boyhood. When you were nine years old, you took a portrait of your younger sister, Patricia, with a little Instamatic camera. Tell us about how that portrait led to a lifelong love of photography.
0: Wow, that's, that's interesting. So, you know, as a kid, I was always fascinated by cameras and the ability to, to freeze time, if you will. And so uh, my mom and dad always had cameras around the house. And this one particular time I grabbed the Instamatic, uh, it had the little cube flash bulb up at the top. And my sister and I were actually outside and I took a picture of Patricia and I didn't think much of it, uh, but my mom got the uh, the uh, photo developed and got it framed, and uh, it still hangs in the house to this day. And uh, when I look back on it, um, it's one of like my proudest moments because uh, my sister at the time was like four years of age, and just to see her now and her growth over the years, and to look back at that image, it's like wow, man! I was I was glad that I was able to capture that, and just proud that. You know, something like that has been able to kind of like stand the test of time and hang on our wall in my in my family's house.
1: This goes to show you that you know we all start on different paths. Mm-hmm. So your paths was just given a camera and then you ran with it. Yes. You are a Navy veteran and actually served on the USS Nimitz aircraft supercarrier. Tell us about what you did on the ship. Which was actually the largest warship in the world when you were on it.
0: Yes. Yeah, so uh, after boot camp and a school in San Diego, uh, I got assigned uh, to the USS Nimitz, which at that particular time was stationed out of Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, my job uh, was a radio man, um, and as a radio man, we handled uh, classified material dealing with crypto. Uh, we did uh, satellite communications, and also worked with a lot of intelligence. Uh, on a highly classified team uh, dealing with uh, cookies and authenticating cookies for wartime. That was one of my collateral duties, but my main primary primary goal was actually in satellite communications aboard the USS Nimitz.
1: Well, you weren't a photojournalist during your stint in the Navy. However, uh, you said you had a camera that I believe you were given as a high school graduation present. Yes. Uh, did you take photos of the fighter jets and life aboard the ship?
0: Yes. Uh, My my parents gifted me a camera for my high school graduation. And, uh, you know, I took that camera with me throughout my time in the Navy, uh, documenting uh, my shipmates, documenting uh, what I could that was uh, non-classified on the ship. And uh, I still have a lot of those photos to this day, like in photo albums. And I normally will repost or share them uh, during Veterans Day, for example, or perhaps during Memorial Day. But yeah, it was it was great to, to take those pictures and to also document my friends, uh, looking back you know, at times when we were on Liberty, for example, uh, throughout the Mediterranean, because uh, I did three, three deployments in total, uh, two Mediterraneans, and one North Atlantic cruise. Um, so yeah, I've always just, like I said, just been fascinated with the camera. Uh, there's a picture somewhere that I have around here with me actually with a camera around my body. And I'm like, wow, I, I forgot all about that particular moment. Um, but when I think back, I was like, you know what I had, I guess I had that camera on me at all, at all times, you know? So yeah, that's, that's what I did when I was in the Navy, I had a good time.
1: Uh, as a photojournalist myself, uh, I'm always curious about the photo gear other photographers use on the daily. When I was at the Toledo Blade, which I just retired from in August, I was issued Canon, but most of us on the staff bought our own Fujifilm bodies because of the image stabilization and silent noise factors. What's in your photo bag?
0: Uh, wow. You know, so I actually in my professional career started off shooting with uh, with Nikon and Fuji. Um, I used a lot of Fuji at the time for street photography, but um, I used my Nikons uh, because they had better low light capability for my concert and event photography. Um, so I probably use about 75, 25 Nikon to uh, Fuji. Um, right now, I currently shoot with, with Leica. So uh, I switched over to Leica brand Um December of 2015, primarily because I found out that I could get uh, better image quality in a smaller body. The Leica cameras that I have, two of which are rangefinders, so with a rangefinder camera, it's fully manual, um, which has uh, basically made me slow down in my process of shooting. Um, And I think that's also improved my process over time. Um, So currently, again, uh, I'm shooting with Leica's.
1: Do you carry one or two bodies on you when you're shooting?
0: Um, great question. It it, it depends. Uh, most of the time I carry two bodies, uh, but there have been times when I have carried one. I prefer to kind of carry one uh, because I can kind of just focus in on saying to myself, you know what, this is what you have in terms of focal length. This is what you have in terms of body. This is what you need to work with today. Sometimes I think with photographers, when we carry multiple bodies, a little confusion can kind of settle in on which camera to use, depending on the situation. But I will carry sometimes a second camera as a backup.
1: you uh, shoot video as well? Because, you know, photojournalists these days, it's almost like a requirement.
0: I do video now primarily through my iPhone. Uh, I don't know if you know, but the quality, the video quality that we now can receive out of these cell phones is is actually great. I mean, you can get 1080, but you can also get 4K video output as well. So I've been using a lot of video from the iPhone.
1: Which iPhone do you have?
0: Um, I have the iPhone uh, 13 Pro Max, and uh, I will do also video out of my Leica. I have a Leica SL2, which also was great with video.
1: So sticking with the photography topic, Mm -hmm. your winning entry for the top 10 MVJ was the Content for Change PSA. Can you tell us about that campaign and some of your images that were included in that PSA?
0: Yeah, so uh, myself uh, and several other photographers throughout the country uh, were uh, communicated or actually reached out to by BET to, to come together as a collective and participate in this content for change PSA, which, as you noted earlier, was a campaign to basically change uh police reform, uh, and also social justice. Um, So I was honored, grateful to be a part of such a diverse group of photographers uh, throughout the country who had been shooting and documenting the uh, Black Lives Matter protests in the year of 2020. Um, I think in that particular piece, uh, as you eloquently stated earlier that Nas narrated, I believe I had three to four pieces in that particular uh, PSA and uh, BET, They ran it, I believe, for that entire summer uh, on their social media channels, as well as on uh, network TV. So very proud moment to, to, to be a part of that.
1: Tell us about your desire to document social change and injustice. When we first talked, you said covering protests is second nature to you, that when you have a camera in your hands, you are telling stories that need to be told. Can you expand on that?
0: As it relates to shooting social justice protests, I myself was kind of born out of a family of uh, civil rights activists. My dad being a civil rights activist from the 60s and, and working not only in the White House, but for the uh, Department of Agriculture as an EEO officer. Uh, my mother uh, was a human resources director with uh, Bell Atlantic slash Verizon. So we've always been in this lane, if you will, of civil rights and of helping people, especially marginalized people um, that look like me. When it comes to shooting, I believe that it becomes second nature because that's what I was accustomed to as a child and hearing my mom and my dad, you know, talk and relate to friends in business, uh, people that they had been working for or working with, I should say, in the community in terms of initiating change, even in our own city of Washington, D.C., to me, I just feel like it's important for us as photographers uh, of any race, you know, to go out and document our times. Um, I believe that for future generations, this is how they will actually learn, right, what we actually uh, live through and experience in our times. Um, so that's why I think it's vitally important for us to, to, uh, to capture these moments.
1: That brings me back to when we had that conversation about who is documenting what we were talking Mm -hmm. earlier about injustice and how that Mm -hmm. also includes who does or doesn't cover certain topics of events for Mm -hmm. example you wondered why more black photographers weren't assigned to cover stories about black issues like the first black supreme court justice yet Mm -hmm. black photographers aren't being assigned to cover evangelist events for example which are primarily Mm -hmm. white Can we dig into that a little bit at the risk of being political?
0: This is 2022. It should be normalized for photographers of color to be assigned to shoot any particular newsworthy item uh, because we're just as capable, just as knowledgeable, and just as qualified as our white brothers and sisters. Um, There have been too many instances in the past, Lori, where we have not been asked to cover even our own events. Uh, There've been too many instances in the past where we've seen white photographers flown in from other cities to cover local news items in our communities. And that's not right um, because we're not asked to go shoot the Oscars. We're not asked to go shoot the Emmys. We're not asked to go shoot some of these other high profile quote unquote white events. Uh, With that being said, Like I said initially, we should be able to to not necessarily look at color and just look at the qualification of the photographer or videographer. That's a a problem. Uh, It continues to be a problem. And this is something that we've been trying to, and when I say we, myself and some of my photography friends have been trying to work through, through editors in terms of assigning us to the same type of of jobs that our white counterparts uh, get assigned to. And if there's something that you know is vitally important to our community, such as a, a Black Supreme Court justice being nominated, like Katanji Brown Jackson, then damn it, you need to have some photographers of color in that room, and it really shouldn't be a second thought. I am glad that my friends, uh, Sarah Beth Maney, for example, she was recognized for her work covering of of, of the uh, nomination process. Uh, with our new Supreme Court justice, as well as uh, my friends, Michael McCoy, Sharice May. That's something that we can do. And systematically, just like in other industries in our country, we have been left out in the cold, so to speak, when it comes to those opportunities, right? That's pretty much where we are now. So we, we were hoping that after the BLM protest in 2020, this would be kind of like a galvanizing point to say, hey, we're here. And you know what? We've been here, you know? And so being on your podcast obviously is giving opportunity for me, uh, obviously is recognizing my work. And I'm thankful for people like you who have given us this, this outlet. We've been here. A lot of our white photographers, they don't have to do this, right? They don't have to be picked out through Instagram or Facebook or Twitter to say, oh, hey, you you do great work. I never knew about you, but your work is great. And they don't have to do that because they're already shooting for the New York Times. They're already shooting for Reuters. They're already shooting for the Washington Post. They're already shooting for all of these major outlets. So with that being said, anything that they get is like icing on the cake, you know? And we're still trying to get to that point we're calling us is normalized. And uh, that's pretty much where we are.
1: Do you think it's systematic unconscious racism amongst the editors and Definitely. the decision makers when they're choosing photographers?
0: Definitely, because if I'm in a room of editors and we're all black, I'm gonna more than likely select a black photographer to go cover said event. So the diversity within these newsrooms needs to change. The diversity amongst editors needs to change. They're only doing what they see, right? They, they're only selecting people that they're familiar with, people that look like them, because there's not enough diversity. There's not enough people in decision-making roles to make these change, changes happen. And, you know, that goes all the way up to the owners of some of these outlets, all the way down through your senior editors, graphic artists, so on and so forth. And that's just that's just what it is. So trying to kind of maneuver and work through those processes uh, is probably going to be even a greater challenge. Um, But that's pretty much where we are. Um, We have to, so to speak, go through the back door, if you will, you know, when all of them have been fortunate enough to kind of come through the front door and be seen by everyone.
1: What did you do for yourself that got you noticed? Because you have an impressive list of notable clients, uh, Vice News, Vogue, Weedmaps, ESPN. How do you break into big media? I mean, it's hard enough for a white person. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you do it?
0: Well, um, for me... It's just consistency. And when I say consistency, I, I'm talking about consistency in terms of shooting, consistency in terms of posting to social media. And that's pretty much what it boils down to because outside of social media, no one will really know of me, right? Um, so I use Instagram, I use Facebook, I use Twitter as that conduit, if you will, to, to basically get my work recognized. Um, and so that's worked out well for me in that sense. And that's how a lot of editors have actually found out about my work through social media. You know, A lot of people rail against social media, it can be the gift and it can also be the curse. But I think that if you use it in the right way, it can be very beneficial. And in my case, which was an unconventional way of being recognized, it's actually worked for me to a great degree.
1: What do you mean by unconventional way of being recognized?
0: Well, when I say unconventional, uh, meaning that I have not had the uh, advantage, I have not had the ability to already work in a an environment of editors, in an environment of photographers that work for a lot of these newswires, for example,
1: like being um, a staff photographer at a local, like like,
0: like like being a staffer, exactly. Got it. Um, you know, even as a freelancer, you know, I, I've never particularly free I freelance on my own. I haven't really freelanced for any particular outlet, but even when you freelance, right, you can find yourself at the bottom of the call list. Okay, and I know that because I know friends who freelance. There may be 10 freelancers on a list where they may be fifth, sixth, or seventh on that list when it comes to getting a call. And it may not necessarily be the nice job. So, you know, of course, the four or five that are up at the top, get the cherry pick, you know, the better jobs. Um, so, again, we're fighting like, you know, in different areas to just get not only recognized, but just to get the opportunity because the rec- recognition will come once you receive the opportunity, because there are so many talented photographers. And I'm not just talking about black photographers. I'm talking about black women as well. Who have been slighted, right? Not only black men, but black women who are excellent in what they do, and then that's a, that's a whole other conversation because women are looked at like, uh, wow, you you know, you're a woman. You can can you handle that camera? Do you know how to shoot uh, manual? Do you can, can you handle the weight? Uh, you know, so they had their own challenges, right? Uh, as well as white women, you know, white women had their own challenges, their sexist challenges as well when it comes to shooting. Particularly right.
1: in sports, Particularly I've, I've in sports. dealt with that myself.
0: So, you know, people kind of look at you like, you're the help and you're like, no, I'm not the help. I'm here as the photographer to cover this event. You know, it's a, it's a white male dominated profession. Again, we have to continue to, to knock down those doors. But for me, like I said, Lori, consistency and just being out there shooting, you know, protests, uprisings, those things like that, um, is very important.
1: Do you have a favorite topic to cover and why?
0: You know, I think um, my favorite topic is always going to be the one that is looking to uplift a certain person or group of people, whether it's perhaps abortion rights, gay rights, whether it's Black Lives Matter. I'm particularly interested in covering people that are marginalized. I'm particularly interested in in capturing people who don't have necessarily the platform, the girth, uh, followers if you will. I'm particularly interested in using the camera to speak for them in that sense. And that's probably what intrigues me the most.
1: Do you believe the military has influenced your storytelling at all? Because the MVJ, we're all about veterans turning into journalists. Uh, We think that veterans in the newsrooms are really essential.
0: I think that my covering of events and being a photojournalist has been influenced by my experience in the Navy. You know, when you're in the Navy as a Black man, you are definitely the minority. When I was in the Navy, you know I, again i worked in the communications center and just to give you like a parallel you know when you're in the communications center aboard a navy ship you know you have various sections right that comprise the comm center you have a section for filing crypto changes typing input messages output messages we also have a burn crew who burns classified material down at the incinerator. And then you have a whole nother section, which is called facilities control, or what we call FATCON. That is the section that has all of the radios and equipment to communicate from the ship to all of the pilots on board. So that is an area that is not necessarily occupied by people who look like me that's always been an exclusive club of people who work in that particular section. I was one of the first, while I was aboard, to work in facilities control as a black sailor, which was taboo, was something that, you know, you didn't see a lot of us doing. And so as it relates to photojournalism, as it relates to opportunities in shooting and covering events it's the same thing in essence that we just touched on where we see a lot of our white counterparts getting these same opportunities that we're not afforded and in that comparison I went through that same experience while I was in the Navy.
1: Well you know what they say um, if you want to change the story you change the storyteller. Yes. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to do,
0: yeah, yes,
1: and I commend you for that. Thank you uh, I think uh, military veterans, we lend discipline, maturity, responsibility. those are some attributes we bring to the table mm-hmm. um, and then when you add minorities mm-hmm. to it then you're you're also combating against racism and changing the story.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I mean it just to just to like add to what you just said, you know, when I was in the navy, women weren't allowed to be on warships. Now you all are allowed to be on warships.
1: You know, when I first went through basic training at Fort Jackson, we weren't allowed to do the obstacle courses. We had to stand by and watch the men do it. And we had to do female sit-ups. So what's next for you, Tony? Is there a big project you'll be working on in the near future? There certainly isn't a lack of content to document considering the political divide in this country.
0: Yeah. uh, Right now, uh, I've I've been blessed and fortunate over the last couple of years to be in several museums and exhibits. I've got some work that was accepted last year into the African American Museum, which I'm very excited and happy about. Uh, Due to COVID, the actual opening of that show has been delayed because the previous shows were kind of put on hold. So we're kind of like biding our time. Uh, Once those shows are completed, then uh, my work will be uh, presented in one of their rooms at the museum here in DC. I'm currently uh, in a show It's the second part of a a Black history show that's coming up in June here in in Laurel, Maryland at Montpelier Mansion, which is uh, an exhibit comprising of uh, a lot of social justice images, as well as just Black life in general, with myself, a friend of mine named Sharice May, Dee Dwyer, and also a brother named Andre Chung. Um, The name of that exhibit is called Black Is. Uh, We ran the show in... Uh, Black History Month. And again, it's going to run in June. Outside of that, uh, I plan on at some point doing a book uh, about the 2020 protests here in Washington, D.C. And I just got back from from Ghana. Uh, I was there for two weeks last month. So I'm thinking about doing something uh, around my trip and my experience in Ghana as well. Trying to stay busy. Got to stay consistent.
1: I'm curious about your COVID coverage. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, so COVID, you know, I I tell people all the time, Lori, COVID to me was like this invisible monster, right? Early on, we didn't know how we caught it. We didn't know how it was affecting or going to affect people. Um, And then we started seeing people, you know, getting bodily ill. We saw people dying. Um, And here I am, I'm in the house And I'm kind of like chomping at the bit, feeling like I need to be doing something. And I think I need to be doing something with my camera. And so I was terrified of COVID, like especially early on, because I just didn't know. I I didn't have uh, enough information, if you will, about the virus. So I just started going out in my car and yeah, I would just drive around the city and I would just take pictures of people in everyday life. People coming out of a grocery store, people at a bus stop, uh, someone maybe walking their children. And I just something inside of me said, you need to document this because someone is gonna find this to be beneficial, educational, newsworthy perhaps. And if nothing else, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm like an historian. So I like looking back on old photos just to see how people lived a hundred years ago. I'm just that type of person, right? Sometimes it's not necessarily for any other reason, but just for me to just look back and see how people dressed, you know, how people reacted or communicated related to one another. And so for me, it was just going out it was like a release uh, from being cooped up in the house to go out and shoot. And I shot people, like I said, from my car. A reporter here in the area, Megan Rivers, who I did not know at the time, uh, came upon my work from another friend named DeMont Pender, who was an artist. And she saw the images that I had taken and she wanted to do an interview. And so that was kind of born out of me freelancing, if you will, to take, you know, these candid pictures of people throughout the city.
1: Were you putting those images on your social media? Is that how you were I to- was.
0: Yes, I was. Okay. I was, I was, I was putting those images, yes, I'm sorry, on on Instagram. Uh I would add them to my stories, you know, and I was getting a little, you know, people were like looking and they were, they were, they were, you know, interested. People were genuinely interested um because I think a certain part of us was like, wow, I can't believe that we're actually living through this. You know, people are literally walking around with masks on. Some people would have like maybe a full bodysuit or something covering from the head to the chest. And so I just thought it would be u- unique because those were like unique times, right? To see people, you know, out walking with masks. And so uh, that was just something that kind of like instinctively in my gut took over and said, hey, you need to go shoot this. And that's what I did.
1: Well, I'm really glad that you have the camera to be Mm -hmm. able to tell your story to prove exactly what you're saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Tony Mobley, for sharing with us your love for photography and your visual activism. I hope you continue to express yourself with your camera because the world needs your light shining in dark places. You can find the link for the Content for Change PSA on the Sword and Pen Anchor site, as well as his social media links. Before I let you go, I wanna do a PSA of our own. There will be a virtual webinar on video color correction hosted by Tanner Iskra, who will teach the process of color correction for video editing. The virtual event is on wednesday may 11th at 6 p.m eastern standard time rsvp asap and that wraps up another episode of the sword and pen podcast i am your host Lori king thank you for listening to our show
0: you've been listening to sword and pen a military veterans in journalism podcast